0: Stigma Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at orbanfoundationforveterans.org forward slash donate. Joan accepted me and listened to me, and to the degree that I was able to express my fears and deep sorrows, she listened endlessly. That as I look back on it, probably more than absolutely anything else is what kept me going, was having that connection with her. Interesting. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment.
1: As veterans and families of veterans, we're all qualified and have a voice in this conversation. Today, we are with the voice of Bob Bach. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it is an honor. It is really an honor. We're going to go go through your short experience with the military, from the time you entered to your experience in in the military, in war, and in the time coming home. So maybe we could start off by asking, why did you join the
0: military? Well, I I did have a sense of patriotism, although... I don't think my dad, who was a World War II veteran, was all that patriotic. I mean, we didn't have a flag in front of the house, for instance, or things like that, but he, he didn't discourage my enlistment, which I did at age 17 in September 1968 and joined the Marines. You know, as odd as it sounds, there was a television show, probably 1965 and 66, I remember I as a sophomore in high school, called Combat. And the lead character in this show was a guy named Vic Morrow, who played the role of Sergeant Saunders. He was a squad leader in World War II. I thought he was the coolest cat going. (laughs) I I really did. I I just thought him and his band of guys, and and they got into some quasi-realistic situations, et cetera, and of course, always came out on the good end of it. But it wasn't necessarily the glorified war story that Kids of my age might have become accustomed to that had come out of the '40s following World War II. This one was a little bit more realistic, and I thought, you know, look at that Sergeant Saunders; he's uh, he's a cool cat. I maybe I should give some thought give some thought to joining the service. And so that idea never really went away until in the senior year in high school, I thought, yep, I'm I'm going to do it after high school and enlisted. As I mentioned, in September of '68. So, so a TV show was your inspiration? For Probably was one of the... Uh, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <crazy. laughs> yeah, isn't that, it sounds crazy. Okay. But, you know, this became part of the problem because I had this romantic notion of what service would be and, and service in a war. The Vietnam War in 1968 was reaching its absolute zenith, a time when shortly thereafter we would reach over 500,000 troops in country, as they said, in Vietnam never to reach that level of armed force in Vietnam again. And this came in the summer of 69. But in 1967 and 68, there were major battles during what was referred to as the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, where the North Vietnamese had made some rather substantial gains against Americans. This was the reality of the Vietnam War. But yet I was seeing Vietnam somewhat and service through this (laughs) lens Of this TV show combat so it I must admit looking at it that way it sounds a bit preposterous I think well
1: let's go back and ask you Bob. what were your expectations when you entered the military
0: well I thought this was the way to serve God and country I I wasn't actually highly religious kind of a kid although I went to a Catholic all-boys high school in Milwaukee called Francis Jordan since closed but it, it was that notion of you do what's right for your country you're proud to be an American Uh, some of the stuff that we hear pretty commonly in songs nowadays. And lo and behold, I think that's what I expected it would be. It would be mostly, while it would be hard work, it would be a rewarding experience and and one that I would be proud of.
1: And you actually went off, joined the Marines and went over to Vietnam. But what were your expectations about war itself?
0: Well, uh, you know, um, I didn't know that people died. I didn't know that people lost their limbs. I didn't know that people screamed when they were wounded. I know, here again, this somewhat, it's actually, I can't believe I was that stupid to think (laughs) that war is not hell, to to, uh, use that phrase. The first patrol that I was on when um, we received enemy fire was noteworthy. We were in a particularly difficult area that was full of Viet Cong and some North Vietnamese regulars, and I was in a squad of roughly 10 guys, probably the seventh man back. This was the first patrol that I was on. And the point man had stopped at a hedge, a tree line, where a kid, probably eight years old, asked him for a cigarette. This was a fairly common occurrence in Vietnam. The children would ask for cigarettes from American GIs. And as the Marine took his pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and gave one to the kid, two Viet Cong opened up from the tree line with AK-47s. They killed him, and they killed the second man back, and they wounded another guy. I was frozen with fear and was kneeling down behind a rock when the squad leader came up and, and yelled in my ear to get moving. And that shocked me into moving forward and trying to engage the battle. But, you know, I mentioned this story because Vietnam was an experience of many opposites. It was a country that was absolutely beautiful, stunning in its, in its different shades of green. Yet it was a highly dangerous place and it, and it was terrifying. One wouldn't necessarily put those two together. But for years and years, I thought about the death of that Marine that day on that patrol until I finally realized somewhat recently, of all things, 50 years after the fact, that this marine, this Marine's last act on Earth was an act of kindness mm-hmm. and generosity. And there, too, lies some of this opposite. So that's a long way of answering your question about what did I expect. I didn't expect to encounter some of these enormous and complex opposites that I began to, and paradoxes that I began to see. I mean, the whole notion of Vietnam, according to Richard Nixon, certainly well-publicized, was to win hearts and minds. And as a theory, it was pretty sound. Let's try to make ourselves amenable to these people, the Vietnam population. Let's try to provide them with health and welfare, and they'll come to our side, was the basic idea However, the way that it was carried out was to have carpet bombings of North Vietnam and select sections of South Vietnam and to engage in assaults and free fire zones, et cetera. So here again, this notion of opposites really sent me spinning, expecting that I would see examples of valor and fighting for the good cause. This, that, and the other, it was, war was a daily slog through fatigue and fear and and enormous difficulty, and I began to learn that lesson from that first firefight onward.
1: So if we were to go back to the whole idea of what was your expectation, what actually happened. But if we think about this not as the the political or, 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 or overall goal of the war, but and personally, I think a lot of us, the main goal was to stay alive right. and not be responsible for the death of any of the people next to us. But it, it, a lot of us played cops and robbers in the military when we were kids and we hid behind rocks with sticks and all of that. And it was fun and somebody died and you fell over and all that. But when it actually, the the, the aspect of what happened actually happens in war, the, the, the barbarism of it, the, the actual the person doesn't get up and walk away. Did that have an effect on you, that, that, that additional element of
0: warfare that was really the savage part of it? Well, it did uh, in, in many different ways, and perhaps most powerfully and profoundly. In order to survive in Vietnam, I had to learn how to deny reality. And by that, I mean, I needed to learn how to fool myself We would have a Marine that would die or get mortally wounded that we would put on a helicopter. And once he was gone, we would never talk about him again. If somebody said, hey, where's Smith? Smith is just, he's just—he's away. He was never dead. He was just away. Because we couldn't handle, at least I couldn't handle the concept of someone dying over there, as really preposterous as that sounds, because it would have made me feel more vulnerable to death. So somehow this was like a some sort of weird inoculation that if I didn't admit that someone died, maybe I wouldn't die. Simultaneously, I had to learn how to control my fear. Vietnam was a terrifying place each and every day. It was particularly terrifying at night, and I needed to somehow numb myself to the pain of losing comrades and numb myself to the ongoing fear that I was experiencing from perhaps dying any second now in any number of different ways. And that became almost a full-time job to fool myself emotionally so that I could continue to function from one day to the next. Our week would be Monday you'd go out on a patrol for six hours, Tuesday night you'd go out on an ambush which would be four or five guys for four or five hours, and Wednesday you would fill sandbags and dig trenches to fortify your position. And Thursday you'd start it all over again and, and you were you were never not tired beyond the most tired you'd ever been in your life. So you had fatigue, fear and terror, all these things working, learning how to, to deny the feelings associated with those things just so you could find a way to survive and try to stay alive for another day.
1: So that that sense of staying alive for another day, that was really the 360-degree focus of your existence. Did you start to not forget about your family, but forget about life in the United States, except for those certain moments where you could drift off there, but then you would come back? But were you aware? You you mentioned this numbing. Were you aware that you
0: were numbing yourself? No, I think it was happening slowly and incrementally. I didn't think to myself, Oh, look at this, I've discovered a new coping mechanism or something. <laughs> I just, so you had no built-in psychiatrist no, that was telling you
1: this is what you're doing, this I is what you're experiencing,
0: to, watch out for this? Trying to find a way to make it work. I, You know, I stayed as close as I could to the guys that I thought really had their act together. In other words, that were concentrating on how to engage the enemy and keep as much favorable to themselves. In other words, I remember being out on patrols and some of the guys that had more time in Vietnam than I did in combat would would go off as a pair and they'd begin to look for boot prints or shoe prints or sandal prints or whatever just to see had the Viet Cong or the NVA Army been around. They, they both wore different kinds of footwear. The Viet Cong wore sandals that were made out of old tires and the North Vietnamese Army wore a boot that kind of look like a tennis shoe almost. So there would be a different. Now, if you were up against NVA, that would mean different kind of tactics. So these guys would go off and and look for, were they there? Did Did they sit here? Did they spend any time here? Which direction did they go? Just so they'd have a better opportunity to stay alive if in fact we were hit. And so I paid close attention to what they did. And I tried to do many of those very same things myself that occupied a lot of time. This was like learning how to how to track other human beings quite literally so that you yourself might have a higher survival rate. So in addition to the the kind of subconscious numbing that I was doing, I was also actively involved in trying to find and implement ways to save my life. And it didn't leave a lot of time to think about stuff back home.
1: So if I were to introduce the the topic of hypervigilance would you say <laughs> yeah. would you say this is what hypervigilance was looking at every regard that you could that focused on saving your life and yes. keeping you alive yeah, that's, watching that's for true. everything that might be around yeah. i'm sure you had heightened this mm-hmm. even extended your hearing to, yeah. to your sense of smell yeah. all of these things that were heightened and were you and you weren't really necessarily consciously aware that you were doing this. This is really you're in survival mode. Right. So right. if we extend this now all the way through your full tour, how well, long did your tour? I was there this for 10 and a half months. For ten and a half yep. months. And then when your time came and and this 10 and a half months was spent with this hypervigilance and this experience at war staying alive, if I were to mention something called the will to live, Mm -hmm. was that important to you?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I had a very strong will to live. Oddly enough, there was a period of time, and I I guess from the reading I've done, this is a fairly common mindset that after about eight months of being there, I began to not care. I, I began to take risks that I otherwise would not have taken chasing after Viet Cong when they were running away and, and trying to catch them and kill them. And I mean, running into areas that had been booby-trapped, but wow, what the hell, I'm going to go after these guys. I mean, really stupid kind of behaviors because after this eight-month period or so of being there, I began to get a pretty deep sense of hopelessness. I felt like I'd been there forever. I felt like I was going to be there forever. And if I wasn't there forever, I was going to die. Mm. So, what the hell? I'm going after them first.
1: Let, let me ask you one more question on that, Bob. Did your sense of staying alive ever turn to just anger at the people that were there rather than fighting for the goal and the mission? Did, you, did this ever turn into these are the guys that are tormenting us with ambushes. These are the guys that are out there. So that you actually got personally involved, like you say, killing these people right. just to stop the madness of what you were involved in, but not necessarily anything
0: to do with the mission of the overall war. I think I lost sight of the the mission actually pretty early on because of... I don't consider myself a cynic necessarily, but I began to become quite sarcastic about Vietnam after as little as three or four months. I began to see the futility. Why would we continue... Let me give you an example. I was in the northern part of Vietnam, which was referred to as I-Corps in in one of the northernmost provinces, and we, as Marine combat Soldiers had the responsibility for providing protection for a group of minesweepers on a road. So the way it worked was minesweepers, since they were unarmed and carrying, much like you might see somebody in a park with a device to find coins, they would go in front of us and look for mines. But since they were not riflemen, the enemy didn't see them as being as valuable as it would be to kill a rifleman. So they the enemy would, when we were in these road sweeps, as they were called, they would generally target the the riflemen. And our job was to mine sweep a road that was not even being used by the Americans. The road was being used by the South Vietnamese Army because the Americans, Marines in this case, deemed that road to be too dangerous with mines, so therefore we're not going to send any vehicles down it. So... These kind of experiences where you're mind sweeping a road to keep it open, even though it's not even utilized, because it's too heavily mined, became like the old Catch-22 book. And I couldn't line up the mission of Vietnam, whether it was win hearts, mines, or gain territory, or whatever it might have been, as I was able to before I ever got over there, where I thought the mission was fairly clear, that we were fighting to keep a country free for democracy. And so this... Became an ongoing point of disorientation, confusion, anger. And some of that anger I did direct at the people I perceived to be my enemies. Although looking back on it now, I, I have no animus whatsoever toward what would have been Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army soldiers. They were simply young people doing as I was, being led by others who should have known better.
1: So, so after this period of time, I don't want to belabor this, but these men that you would chase after, the Viet Cong that you would chase after, this became just personal a- anger. And I- I'm asking, I'm not saying this, but there
0: there was anger involved, certainly, in attempts to try to do what war is designed to do, and that's eliminate your enemy. Even though, I mean, here too, uh, I was beginning to have second thoughts because I mean, I didn't know any of these people. It's I, not uh, it's Jim or Tim or Bill and Sam and all. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. Mm. This was simply somebody running around with an AK forty seven and a pair of black pajamas. Right. So,
1: but the finality of what we did, I right. think, uh, the, the dead bodies, the killing of right. people, uh, w- without the mission being there, would that at that time were you aware of this that you weren't really following the mission as much as it was just a survival? Were you aware of that at the time, or were you? Was this just a continuation of a war as you had known it from from three months after you got there? That's
0: I'm not. I really don't know. I I don't think I've thought of that question. It was just a very confusing period. And I'll tell you why. Because we had a difficult time in the Marine Corps for whatever reason or reasons, I don't know, getting the proper supplies to to do what we needed to do. I'm talking about boots and clothes and and machine gun barrels. I mean, pretty much the stuff of war. And I couldn't understand why we who were literally on the front line would— be treated like that when our mission was to carry forth and protect South Vietnam's democracy? Why wouldn't we get what we needed and be taken care of first? These were some pretty heavy questions for an 18, 19-year-old kid. And the feelings of, of being betrayed were starting to creep in. So where did my commitment to the mission end and my anger at the enemy start and the enemy at my own government begin and the the peculiarities associated with all of what was going on you know it's sort of like a bowl of noodles you can reach in there and pull one out but I don't know if you'd get the one you were looking for
1: and they're all intermixed and intertwined they're all knotted up and twisted up Plus, we would need to add to this patriotism, honor, Absolutely. the Marine Corps. All of these yeah. things are all have to be weighing very, very heavily on you. What what your family would think of you, what the country would think of you. All of these are maybe, maybe not necessarily be in the forefront of your thinking, but they, they all have to be playing a part of how you're acting and how you're thinking about this experience. And from what they thought and what it was actually what the actual experience was. So I'm wondering, at what point, when we have the expectation to vote more, at what point or is it gradual that we, the actuality of it is completely different from the expectations?
0: I think while there are things that happen suddenly, like that patrol where the point man was shot and the man behind him, the actual realizations that I'm talking about come on somewhat gradually. gradually. And they become a rather large ball rolling downhill until you can't stop them. This, and I will say that part of the confusion over there, this was not a, the finest hour for the hierarchy of the United States Marine Corps, <laughs> in my opinion. I was a Lance Corporal, which is an E3. I was a squad leader, which is almost unheard of in, in this day and age where the rank is generally sergeant. But we had so many guys wounded that I advanced to the role of squad leader and had that for a month and a half. During the time that I was on combat squads for that 10 and a half months, to my knowledge, there was only one time that we were, or two times that we were out with a Staff Sergeant would be an E6 or anyone above the rank of Sergeant. And I don't recall being out with anyone above the rank of First Lieutenant on most actions. So generally, whether it's the Marine Corps or the Navy or the Coast Guard or the Merchant Marine, it doesn't matter. You are taught a certain chain of command and you're taught to follow your leadership. And your leadership is generally that they're, they're leading the way or they're at least participating. But <laughs> in combat situations in Vietnam between, I'll be very specific here, between May of 1969 and March of 1970, I did not see a great deal of Marine leadership in life and death situations. I'm sorry to say.
1: Bob, I think that is a topic we could save for <laughs> its own <laughs> podcast. I would agree with that in many ways. But let, let, let's go on now. And you, you've come to your 10 and a half months in, right. in Vietnam. You've had all of these experiences. They're certainly, you're, you're certainly welcome to share any more of that information that you like. But now you have an expectation you're going home. Right. What is your expectation of getting home? Are you expecting life as it was before you went to war? Or are
0: you noticeably aware that this is going to be different for you? Well, I'll answer that directly. But let me just give you this backdrop. I Served for 18 months of active duty and I, I had a three year enlistment, but I was uh, discharged 18 months early because at that time the United States government was really trying to reduce the size of the armed forces. So if you had certain qualifiers, such as X number of months in combat versus X number of years on an enlistment, etc., there was a formula by which you could qualify for an early out if you wanted. And I was given a choice and I said, Yes, I would like to leave after 18 months. So coming home now, At 19 years old, I was a combat veteran, and I expected to be honored upon arriving home. I expected to be somewhat celebrated for my service and thanked and some gratitude expressed in some form or fashion. And I kind of thought I'd sort of pick up where I left off with my buddies, the ones I knew from high school Now, by this time, the cadre of guys that I graduated from high school with would have completed their first year of college, so they'd they'd be college sophomores. And, in fact, none of those things happened when I came home, oddly enough, with one minor exception. I happened to see a friend of mine from high school one night, and he said, Hey, Bob, I heard you got back. Good to see you. His name was Johnny. I said, Well, it's good to see you, too, Johnny. And he said, Hey, listen, I'm having some of the guys over in my basement uh, rec room on uh, Friday night. We're going to play some cards. Will you come over? I said... Sure, I'd love to. He said, look, here's the way we do it is everybody brings his own six-pack, and then we just sit around and play cards. So I said, sounds good to me. So I bring a six-pack of beer, and we're sitting in Johnny's basement, and we're playing, I don't know what the hell we're playing, poker maybe. And about 45 minutes into it, the cards are getting shuffled around the table, chips, and one guy's name is Walter. Walter says, so Bob, and he's flipping through his cards, how'd you like the war? <laughs> 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 I, I thought, How'd I like the (laughs) war? That's a great question. So, now let me tell you something. Up until very recently, I thought this was the stupidest, most (laughs) insensitive question I could have ever heard from anybody. And then, one day, almost like an epiphany, I thought, you know, two things happened that night. Number one, Johnny, in his own way, was reaching out and saying, Bob, come on over. We'd like to see you. Because you're important to us. And number two, Walter, in his own way, how is the war, is reaching out and saying, I don't have the slightest idea what the hell to ask you, Bob, but I at least want to find out how you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, these were both very kind acts. And I I see them. I'm sorry. I spent so many decades just shaking my head thinking about that because this was a very kind exchange. And... (laughs) But there were there were very few of them. That's, in March of 1970, my girlfriend was a freshman at UWM. And uh, while she was not what I would consider strongly anti-war, she was participating in some anti-war demonstrations that were going on on campus. In fact, these demonstrations led to the closing of the university. I went with her and remember observing these things and not... Really having a strong feeling, oh, those damn hippies. I, I didn't feel any of that stuff. I, I thought, this is kind of interesting. Look at all this energy. But what happened was, it was sort of a, a shocking way to re enter the community that I had left a year and a half earlier and had now really been sort of stood on its ear because the student demonstrations represented this kind of schism between the generations. The older generations tended to be more in support of Vietnam by extension from their years of World War II service, et cetera. And the younger ones were revolting, rebelling, and otherwise showing their dissatisfaction with all this. So I came back to a, a community where, in pretty short order, I began to really feel disoriented and confused. The friends I had weren't there. Issues and the situations within my own community had changed and were now different, And I felt lost. And it was that would prove to be, unfortunately, one of the most troublesome aspects of my life going forward was this element of disorientation and confusion. Could
1: you describe that just a little bit better? What what was the disorientation? What was the confusion?
0: It was I thought, why am I not getting some positive attention? for the sacrifices that I made, and I know my comrades are still making over there, and instead I'm being ignored. And why, if what the demonstrators are saying has any validity whatsoever, in the hell are we still there fighting, and it doesn't seem to be doing any good? And why is the government really not doing something about this? And how in the heck could they have betrayed me into believing this BS that I was fighting for God and country, and in fact, I don't know what I was fighting for. And on top of that, I know guys that died over there, and I still think about them. So, this was enough at 19, certainly, to really begin to make me feel confounded, confused, and then angry. And when the anger began to enter the picture, it wasn't long before I found it more difficult to reconcile and line up a lot of these feelings And the anger became rage. And in some cases, it was almost white hot, that rage. It could just, at the snap of a finger, set me off. I was at a used car lot on Appleton Avenue, just off of 76th in Milwaukee. can't remember what the heck the alert was anymore. I was going around and around with the salesman who was probably in his late 50s. And we were haggling on the price. And the subject came up that I was a Vietnam combat veteran. And this guy basically told me that we were nothing but a bunch of whiners. And I i thought, oh, I'll <laughs> let that one slide. Maybe I can get 50 bucks off. But he wouldn't let it go. And he wouldn't move on the price. So I thought, this is hopeless. I was getting kind of steamed inside. And I got back in the car that I was using, one of my dad's cars. And I drove home. And as I was passing the lot, this guy was standing next to the car that I wanted. And he gave me the finger. I remember I got home and I, I must have looked kind of weird. And my mom said, well, did you look at that car? I said, yeah. She said, well, you don't look so good. I said, I know that's because I didn't go back and kill the salesman. <laughs> so she, she was shocked, but I wasn't joking. I want to go back and kill him. So I didn't, but <laughs> I acted in plays in high school. So in, in the spring of 1968, I was in some musical production and dancing and singing. And then in March of 1970, I wanted and had some intention to go back and murder a car salesman. Now, something happened between those two dates. And it sort of is an indication of the enormous power that war, an impact that war can have on us and how it can change us. And so this uh, anger became rage. But, you know, having learned what I did in Vietnam, which was the way you take care of feelings is by numbing yourself. You can't be walking around with this rage. You are going to hurt somebody, and then you're going to go to prison. So when somebody does something that makes you angry, you better find a way to numb yourself to that anger, to numb yourself to that confusion, to numb yourself to all of these other emotions that are sizable emotions. You need to numb yourself to them just so that you can function, maybe go on to college yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And so that started a rather long period of trying to deny the feelings that I truly had and go forth. And at the time, although I found out about it much later, there were very few services and or individual counseling, et cetera, that were made available to returning combat vets that might have helped them work their way through some of these profound issues that as a young individual they were now confronted with. And when I look back on it just day by day making me older and more bitter inside.
1: Let's stop. You bring up so many excellent points, Bob. Let me go back and just this whole idea of your friend asking you, first of all, so what was the war like, Bob? If we go back to that, when we're talking about our expectations before we go off to the military, wouldn't you have asked that question before you went to war? I mean, I've always thought when people ask me these questions, they're the same questions that I would have asked. It's only the actual experience of war as opposed to the expectation that makes you shocked at the question because I think I, I, maybe we were shocked at what right. we actually experienced mm-hmm. so the question is just absurd and the other thing is if we're comparing all of these we didn't go off we don't go off to any of these wars as you would a soccer game and when we come back yeah. there are consequences right. that are they are barbaric they are savage they are deadly and they are permanent mm-hmm. and they include taking away from us the one thing that we are most wanting to keep and that's our reverence for life our, our will to live we want to go home we want families we, we want want to go on and uh, have jobs and whatever it is that life means to us. So we know the price that's actually paid for all of these things. Does that, when you come back, add to the amount of anger or response you have, not because of necessarily not believing in the mission anymore, but the price that was paid not to believe in the mission as a soldier?
0: Well, I guess the way I see it is I, I was stunned at how Naive, I could have been. Of course, this is what war is, and some people realize this. It's part of the reason why they went to Canada and and refused the draft, etc. You know, but I didn't. I, I I had these romantic notions of what war was and what a warrior was, etc. And of course, when reality slapped me in the face, they were entirely different, and now I had to deal with it. And I so this naivete became problematic as well, and, and required me to. Try to untangle the whole mess that I found myself in.
1: Let's go back and spend a little bit more time on actually coming home. Now, you mentioned your mom and your dad, and so you have that interaction with your family. You've got the interaction with your friends that isn't working out anymore. Tell us about the family. I know you had a brother. I know you have your mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Was there any change in how you felt into your family, how they treated you, how they felt about your coming home and that sort of thing? What was that
0: experience like? Well, they were greatly relieved. My mom was just physically relieved. They had aged, certainly in the time that I was gone so it it was great to be in their company and what have you. I, I, It's funny, that was, uh, you know, in the late 60s was a time when kids at 18, 19, 20 would would leave home. Nowadays, it's far more likely that a child might stay until they're 25 or 26 and save some money and, you know, this kind of thing. But that wasn't the case back then. We were kind of in and out of the nest in more of a hurry. But I was happy to be home. I was happy to be back on familiar ground. I was happy to not have to be going on patrol throughout the backyard each night and look for <laughs> v- Cong Some of these other things that sound preposterous, but they, they really weren't. So that was, that was all a plus thing. I, uh, there were these feelings that were making me uncomfortable that I was trying to deal with as best that I knew how. I would go to Lake Michigan, and you, you may recall that along the Lake Michigan shore there used to be these anti-erosion devices. They were like long cement piers, and they went into the lake. And not just north of Bradford Beach, as a matter of fact, in Milwaukee, there was a, one of these piers, and adjacent to it was just a probably an anchor of stones, all about two inches. So I had invented a game of throwing stones at this pier. Yeah, I, I mean, I might spend two hours a day throwing stones in the lake and <laughs> perfectly enjoyed it because it was there was a certain rhythm to it and a certain repetitiveness that, I didn't have to think about any feelings doing that. I just throw these stones in the water. So so could we think that was part of isolating yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Or, and, or denying yeah. things or and, and to really make it fun, <laughs> I had imaginal, imaginary characters, these people that I had in my head, and so I would play games. You know, if you if you hit the pier with so many stones you get so many points and then I, then I'd start announcing these. I was often just this complete fantasy land.
1: But understandably, but this was this, this was in retrospect really avoidance, really, oh, really yeah. isolating. Yeah. That's, that's and just, a great word for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and if we can, Bob, you went back and you said that all of this rage, as anger had turned to rage, and and you. you you were trying to keep it inside, keep it down, not let it come out, not let it be expressed, not engage it. So if this is a large part of who you are now, this rage, you didn't say that, but is this becoming something that you have to develop a facade to face the world with? So they didn't know this part about you or or didn't touch that experience of war, engage that part.
0: You were were protecting that. Is that what we're isolating from? Well, I think so. And a couple of things were happening at the time. One was I had a difficult time holding jobs. I, just, I would get bored, or I'd get in an argument with the boss, or the boss wasn't right, and what, after all, what the hell did he know? He was never in combat. I mean, it was just a bad starting point with an employer. <laughs> the reputation that combat veterans had was worsening, and we were being called all kinds of things, and so when I applied for work, I'd stop listing my military experience because I thought, this is a detriment Mm-hmm. Now, and then that played into, well, wait a minute, I thought you were doing this because you were proud of your country. And so I really had a hard time working things out. But yeah, there was an emotional toll, and I needed to be careful to keep up the facade of being a of kind of normal, well acclimated individual so I could, you know, get on with my daily life. The one thing that, and this is huge beyond all description. The girlfriend that I had that was the freshman in college when I came home, Joan, has been my wife for almost 48 years. (laughs) So we were going back to that. (laughs) Joan accepted me and listened to me, and to the degree that I was able to express my fears and, and deep sorrows, she listened endlessly. That, as I look back on it, Probably more than absolutely anything else is what kept me going, was having that connection with her. Interesting. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. Tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.